0: We invite the rest of us to open up to Isaiah 44 today. And as we're thinking about that image, maybe as you're working on cutting those hearts out and doing that work of of mending or, or recovering what's been broken, we're going to be thinking together about the recovery, the mending of our identity. For the past uh, few weeks, we have been talking about all that's been broken, all that's been lost. Uh, Two weeks ago, we looked at Genesis 3 and thought about the fall and about how that uh, is an an image, how it's an expression in the scriptures of how we have lost our sense of who we are, of that image we were made in. And then last week, we spoke uh, from Psalm 135 about Our own loss of God's identity, our our loss of, of a knowledge of who God is and how that impacts us in return. So when something gets broken, when something valuable is lost, the first thing we want to know is there a way for it to be recovered, to get it back somehow. One of the the things we now have to to worry about losing in the 21st century is our digital information. We live in a time where some of the most valuable things we have are stored on hard drives. We store letters, we store documents, we store photos. And we have to make sure that wherever we put those things, Whatever location they're saved in is secure so that we can get back to them when we need them. Otherwise, we run the risk of losing our digital identities, so to speak. There is an incredible story uh, about the film studio Pixar uh, many years ago when they were producing the second Toy Story movie. And according to the studio, the film was nearing its completion. Essentially, all the work had been done in animating and producing the film. They were rendering it on their computers, and just a few months away from its release. Until one day, a staff member came into the studio and accidentally ran a command on one of their computers. And the command started the process of deleting all the information on that primary server. And apparently, as the studio staff were working on their computers, they started to see these files disappearing from their workstations. And someone shouted, and they unplugged uh, the server from the wall to stop the deletion process. But in that 20 seconds, whole characters in the film, all of the, the pieces that built up there, their images in the film were gone, whole sequences of the film had been lost. And so the studio said, no big deal, we'll go back. To our backups, just restart, right? Re- reboot the system, only to find that their backups had all been corrupted as well. They weren't backing up the way they thought they were supposed to be. And so when they did some triage, they assessed what had taken place, they determined that about 30 years worth of man hours of work had been lost in those 20 seconds by pulling the plug. And they were deliberating about whether they need to delay the film when they need to hire additional staff to recover all that information and, and reprogram it. And it was in that kind of crisis meeting that one of the technical directors of the movie remembered that the week before she had copied the film onto her laptop because she wanted to work from home with her kids. And they said, you need to go home and get that computer. (laughs) So she rushed across the Bay Area, went home, found her laptop. And they, they said they put pillows around the computer. They seat belted it into the back seat just to make sure it was as safe as possible, and she returned to the studio with her computer. They uploaded the information onto the server, and essentially everything was there. Right? Characters, details, scenes were fully recovered. Right? Thanks to a working mom. Now, in a, in a digital reality, backups can come in handy. and In this case, a kind of miraculous backup. But what about in real life? What do we do when there are portions of who we are that have been lost? Portions of our lives that have been corrupted or damaged in some way. We may wonder, is a recovery realistic? Is it possible? Is all that was lost in Genesis 3 there in the garden, with Eve and Adam's sin, is that recovery possible? Can we go back to what was before that? We've been thinking about our losses these last few weeks, and with those in mind, with those in view, I want us to ask this question seriously, how is it that we begin recovery, if at all? And to help us consider that in the light of scripture, I want to open up to the book of Isaiah, the prophet, starting in chapter 44. 44. I believe what we have in Isaiah is one of the richest deposits in Scripture that speaks to human identity. And I think Isaiah is valuable, especially in chapters 40 and and forward, because he, he knows human identity in two respects. He's not afraid to tell us how much has been lost, how much has been damaged in our worship of things other than the living God. He speaks... Honestly, soberingly about the loss of identity. But he's also a prophet that speaks with great hope about the promises we have in who our God is in his power to save and to restore and to recover. So let me pray for us as we open up God's word. Lord, we confess that In the waywardness of our hearts, in the weakness of our own human frailty, Lord, we have worshipped things which have not given us life, which have not led us into greater freedom, but instead have blinded our eyes, have shut up our ears, have rendered our hearts hard and calloused to you. Jesus, we pray for our recovery today, and we pray that your word would have power to speak and to pour spirit and life into our empty frames. Lord, may the words of my mouth as I preach, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you now. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. We're in Isaiah 44, but it's important to identify what's come just before this in in the chapters immediately preceding 44. Isaiah is is laying out, I think, for Israel their own identity crisis here. Back in, in chapter 42, he speaks on behalf of the Lord and he says, Who is as deaf as my messenger, Israel? Who is as blind as my chosen people? And he's speaking to Israel at a time when they have gone into exile, when they have been defeated by their enemies, when their, their own weaknesses and vulnerabilities are very apparent to them. And the Lord reminds them of, of the condition they have come to. In chapter 43, just before this, God then declares that Israel had grown tired ...of worshipping him. That Israel had stubbornly refused to come and ask him for help. That they'd become like the idols they had given their hearts over to worshipping. But despite all that... ...as chapter 43 ends and 44 begins here... ...God says at the end of 43 that despite their hardness of heart... ...despite all that they have become... He has chosen to make redemption possible. He has chosen to pursue them for his own sake, he says. Because he alone has preserved, he alone possesses the identity and the goodness that they had lost in their rebellion. And so he is going to begin something new. Read with me verses 1 through 5 in chapter 44. God says, but now, listen, Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen, this is what the Lord says, he who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you, do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. Some will say, I belong to the Lord. Others will call themselves by the name of Jacob. Still others will write on their hand, the Lord's, and will take the name of Israel. Isaiah declares here that recovery is, in fact, possible. He declares on behalf of the Lord that we can know who we are. We can regain the things that have been lost and he wants us to remember that against the backdrop of, of who our God is. Right? As, we, as we prayed in Psalm 136, he's a God who's in, whose love endures forever for his people. Right? Psalm 103 says his love is, is like that, it's greater than the expanse of, of, of the heavens to the earth. Right? It's, it's this massive, enduring, never-ending love. And so because of that love, our recovery is possible. But for that to take root in us as God's people, I think there are three aspects of that recovery highlighted in verses 1 through 5. And the first one comes in those first two verses, where it talks about how in order for us to gain a deeper and truer sense of our identity, we have to have new open ears to listen to what the Lord says about us. One of the more discouraging aspects of human psychology is our capacity to block out the voices that know us best. Voices that are familiar tend to be kind of pushed out. A friend of mine uh, told me he had come across a study at one point uh, by a psychologist who studied children. And they determined that children were 800% less likely to obey a command given by their mother or father than by another adult figure. So you could have a teacher, you could have just a stranger walk into a room, asks a child to do something. They're eight times more likely to listen the first time to that person than they are to their own parents. Parents, you can probably identify with this. Spouses, probably there's a similar uh, reality here. Right, when it comes to those who love us most, who know us best, right, we are all guilty of selective listening. And so if that's true in our family relationships, right, imagine how that is magnified then in the way, the capacity we have to listen and notice the voice of the one who made us, who created us. And so here in verse 1, Yahweh, the Lord, is trying to break through that destructive habit of ignoring His voice. And to do that, He uses one of the most significant verbal commands in the Old Testament, in Hebrew. Shema is the word. It's the same word that we get back in Deuteronomy, where He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. In Isaiah, the Lord says... Listen, hear, notice the Lord, the one who made you. Notice now what he wants to say about you. Listen to who the Lord wants to say you are. But for us to hear what God has to say... We have to overcome, I think, more than just bad habits, right, more than just kind of that ignoring sense of, of God. I think we have to address something that's deeper and harder to overcome, and that is our own fear, our fear of what the Lord might say about us. And I think it's, it's that same fear that we talked about a couple weeks ago that goes back to Genesis 3 there in the garden, the fear of exposure, the fear of nakedness, the fear of being shamed by what we have done, or by who we are. Old Testament scholar John Gay, who's written a commentary on Isaiah, he points out how here in this section of Isaiah, there's a lot of exposing going on. Israel is being reminded of, of what's taken place of their own idolatry, of their, of their failure, of their shortcomings, of their unfaithfulness to God. They've worshipped other things. That's apparent. And so there's, there's a sense, I think, here that they are trying to hide those things, both from God and his sight, but also from themselves. Right? It's too painful to countenance. Too painful to, to really look hard at. And so there's, there's a fear that's taken root. Maybe we can relate to those same fears. All right, imagine standing before God today and asking God this question. Lord, how do you see me? Lord, how do you want to, to speak about me? What do you want to tell me about myself today? I think there's a big part of me that is fearful to really hear what God might say. And there's part of me that fears God would start into the long list of flaws and deficits and, and, and failings. Right? I, I know that list. I know that voice. There, there's that internal voice that I think all of us have experienced. For me, it's Most often, one I hear if I wake up in the middle of the night sometimes, and it begins to review for me all the things I should have done differently that day, or maybe something I'm afraid I missed or left undone. Pokes at the places of my inadequacy. Right? It's it's a condemning voice. And it's it's a voice that, that leads to, it, it bears the fruit of despair, right? of, of sinking into a kind of shame and, and hopelessness. Maybe you experience that voice in the middle of the night. Maybe it's in the middle of a long week. Maybe it's in the middle of a, a difficult relationship where you feel powerless to be someone different. And I think there is, at least in my experience, a tendency for me in those difficult times to begin to wonder, to begin to think that that might be the voice of the Lord speaking to me. Reviewing, reminding me, exposing my failings and my shame. But I want us to test that condemning voice against the way God speaks. To Israel here in these verses. I want us to look at how God speaks and what he says here. Notice in verses 1 and 2, twice in these passages, he confirms, he affirms his commitment to Israel by calling them his chosen people. Right? He's saying, I am for you. I have chosen you. This is my desire. The Lord speaks into their anxiety and he says, do not be afraid. I will help you. And I am for you. And then in verse 2, he even uses this, this title, this name Jeshurun, which appears just a few times in the Old Testament. But it's, it's an affectionate way of address. And it actually means upright one. One who is righteous. One who has standing in the sight of the Lord. Right? This is what he calls Israel. Despite the fact that they're in exile. Despite that they are a broken people. He calls them chosen. He calls them beloved. He says he is for them. He says do not be afraid. Right? This is what the voice of the Lord sounds like. And as Israel begins to hear the voice of the Lord, then the Lord goes on to explain his promises to them. The place he desires to lead them now. He speaks of a future for them. I think too often when we feel broken, when we feel stuck in life, we tend to focus on the past in those times, right? We review the things we wish were different. But I believe even though that, that God wants to and, and needs to enter into our past to bring healing and recovery and reconciliation there, that a big part of recovering our identity in the present is actually drawn from who God has promised to make us in the future. Part of understanding who we are now is understanding the things God will do one day. Look at verses 3 and 4 and look how many times the word will shows up. That that future aspect here. God says, I will pour water on thirsty land. I will pour my spirit out on your offspring. on Future generations yet to come. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like trees beside flowing streams. God paints a picture for them of their future. And it's a future that almost sounds like a return to Eden. It's a recovery of that that past they had lost. It's a future where God will undo their lostness, where God will undo their exile. God promises a future that is flourishing here. And it's from these future promises that Israel is meant to draw their present sense of identity. God is saying to them, this is who you are. I want you to define yourself in light of these promises. In light of the places I am leading you. He says, you are a people I want to pour new life into, right? Like like water on thirsty ground. I'm going to pour out breath and spirit onto my people. And so that you will be a people who have deep roots in me once more. And so that you can be fruitful from who I am again. Right? Like Genesis 1, you will be fruitful. You will multiply. You will be agents of my blessing upon the earth. Again. And again, this is part of hearing clearly the voice the Lord wants to speak over us. Right? A voice that calls us His chosen, His beloved, His upright one, one who He will help. It's a voice that speaks here future promises of healing and renewal and recovery. But I think for me, the the culminating verse in this passage that that points toward our true identity comes in verse 5. And it's it's when from that place of of hearing what God says about us, that we can say with confidence, I belong to the Lord. I have a place of belonging. That's, That's the core of what it means to be secure in our identity. That's probably one of the greatest desires I have in life. It's One of the greatest needs I have in life is to know that I belong somewhere, that I'm not alone in this world, but that I have a person or a family that knows me, that knows who I truly am, and that still welcomes the reality that my life is bound up with theirs. They would say, you belong with us. We receive you. We care for you. And we will help you. We will be for you. A few months ago, I, I came across this quirky independent movie on Netflix called The Hunt for the Wilder People. And it's, uh, it's, it's an unusual movie. Uh, and it takes place out in the bush country of New Zealand. And it, it follows the story of a middle-aged couple who welcome a troubled foster child into their house. His name's Ricky Baker. And he has uh, you know, been in and out of all kinds of trouble in the past. But he manages to make it there because they're so far out in the middle of nowhere that he can't run away again. Right? There's nowhere for him to go. And just you know, in case you decide to watch the movie, it's not a kid's movie. There's some rough scenes where he's trying to find his place. But after he's been part of this family for several months, it comes time for for his 13th birthday. And so his foster mother writes this really goofy birthday song. And and the movie has a very quirky sense of humor. But I want to play just that birthday clip for you. And I want you to watch Ricky, the, the foster child's expression, as the song continues and watch his expressions on his face. Ricky Baker, now you are 13 years old. You are a teenager and you're as good as gold. Ricky Baker, Ricky Baker, happy birthday. Once rejected, now accepted by me. And Hector, we're a trifecta. Ricky ah, uh, Ricky ah, uh, Ricky ah, uh, uh, Ricky ah, uh, uh, Ricky ah, uh, uh, Ricky Paikah, uh, uh, Ricky Paikah, Ricky I know you didn't see the movie and it's kind of a goofy clip just to throw you into the middle of. But for me, that, that clip sort of speaks to the search for belonging that that, uh, that young man has in the film. And you, you can see it on his face, right, as, the, as the, the, the song continues, right? When he gets to his own name and he gets into those really high falsetto notes, right? That sense that he is accepted, he's received, he's finding his way into this very unusual family. Here in verse 5, there's a strong sense that Israel is recovering its own name. That they're finding who they are in a new way. Because they have that powerful sense of belonging to the Lord. Right? They, they feel, they hear the voice of the Lord welcoming them. Right? Renewing them, pouring spirit out upon them. Dispelling that fear of being rejected. So they don't have to hide anymore. They can can show themselves to the Lord and say, I belong to him. My name is Jacob, it says. I belong to the Lord. And in verse 5 it says some even decide to go a step further than that. In the ancient world it was customary to inscribe on valuable possessions the name of the owner. For example, in ancient Israel, archaeologists have unearthed uh, valuable objects like, like pitchers and, and earthware and, and other objects used in the royal household of the king. And, and on the handles was inscribed melech, which means belonging to the Lord. Right? This belongs to someone of significance. Sometimes there was a custom that servants would actually tattoo the name of their master on their hands. Again, to identify to whom they belonged. But here it says those who have been redeemed by Yahweh. Those who he has poured his spirit out upon. Those who he has renewed his commitment to. Remember, they're in exile. They have very little hope. But here, because of the voice of the Lord... They choose to, to tattoo, to ink across their hands. Right? Le Yahweh. Right? I am the Lord's possession. I belong to someone of great importance. And we need to live from that deep sense of belonging. Of being named by and known by God. Of delighting in the name he's given us. And again, I think we all experience that internal battle of, of do we actually belong there? Right? Do we feel entitled to be part of the family of God? But if we need further proof to that end, I love how Isaiah comes back to this image in a different way in chapter 49. Right here in 44, verse 5, right, it's Israel writing the name of the Lord upon their hand as proof of belonging. But in chapter 49, looks forward to a time where, again, in their exile, in their despair, Israel cries out, Jerusalem cries out, has the Lord forgotten us? Has he deserted us? Right, there's that despairing voice coming back again. And the prophet speaks on behalf of the Lord and says, could a a mother forget her own child who she gave birth to? It says, even if that were possible, the Lord could not forget His children. And then in verse 16 it says, See, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. This is the Lord speaking about His people. Right? because the, the Lord has engraved our name on His palms first. We can then, in turn, inscribe his name on ours and say, we belong to you. Right? Because our names, our identities, our lives are constantly before him. And he is committed to recovering them. Committed to making a future for us. Committed to helping us in our place of brokenness. Right? He's committed to making our recovery possible. So as we conclude this morning, Karen's going to come up and and play for us some some music to reflect on. But as as we reflect, I would invite you to use this time to listen to the Lord's voice. And I know it's, it's an exposing feeling to ask the Lord, what do you say about me? But I think we need to hear the voice of the Lord naming us in a new way today. So take take a few minutes to do that prayerfully and quietly today. Would you pray together with me? Lord, we bring to you our own hearts and lives, but we bring to you our, our corporate identity too as a church, as a family, who longs to be named and known by you. Lord, we pray for those who may be especially despairing or discouraged today. Lord, we pray for those who feel alone. Lord, those who have been sick, those who have faced stress, brokenness of various kinds, Lord, in this past year, and just need the assurance and the promise that you are for them, that you are preparing a future in which they and in which their offspring and those in the family to which they belong will flourish, Lord, because of who you are, because your love is steadfast and forever. Lord, I pray, too, that you might give us An opportunity today to speak to someone else whom you love deeply and to to share who you are and how deeply you love that person in words of of truth um, and assurance and tenderness, Lord. But to speak to one another with your voice. I thank you that you have given us your name to share in. It's in your name that we pray these Mm -hmm. things.